Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Newcastle Chronicle and Journal, Lancashire Live and the Hull Daily Mail. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. Later in the podcast, we'll be hearing from a passionate Northerner who's on the hunt for 100 great ideas which could change people's lives in our region. We'll throw a billion pound project in at the wall and hope that something will stick. Whereas in truth, when you actually listen to people on the ground, they've got much smaller ideas that they think could make a real transformational difference to them with very little uh, additional investment. So we want to capture that, share it, and then hopefully give a a voice to those communities uh, for the resources they're calling for. But first, let's check in with the north of England's newest Metro Mayor as he adjusts to life in his new role. Before being elected this spring, Oliver Coppard led on local government relationships for a national charity and was the chair of the board at a students' union. But he's now the Labour Mayor of South Yorkshire, a region with its fair share of deprivation and challenges, but also looking to capitalise on its considerable strengths to rebuild its pride, purpose and prosperity. Oliver, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Hello. Nice to have you on. So as we record this interview on a Friday afternoon, it's been 57 days, I think, since you were elected as mayor. What's it been like for the first few weeks? And is there anything that's particularly surprised you about the role of mayor that you weren't expecting? Well, look, I mean, first and foremost, I've, it's been a you know an honour, a privilege. I've, I've genuinely enjoyed uh, my time so far as, as mayor. It's been brilliant. Uh, it's, a, it's a brilliant job. And it's an incredible kind of privilege to be the mayor of the place that I call home, you know, the place I was born and raised. So, you know, I couldn't be more pleased to to be in the job and, and be kind of getting my feet under the table and beginning to kind of develop my agenda and, and make sure that we're delivering on those promises that we made during the campaign. So, yeah, very, very excited to sort of get going. I think it's fair to say, I mean, this week in particular has been pretty tough in the sense that we've had some pretty terrible news about, for instance, public transport cuts and the things that some of the bus companies are going to be doing here in South Yorkshire to remove services in October in particular. And so there's definitely been, you know, ups and downs over the last even just 50 odd days. And, uh, and I'm sure that's going to be the kind of model for the next few years in the sense that, you know, there will be some great things that I hope we can achieve and some great things we can do in the region but of course there are going to be some challenges as well and we've got to work through those and and make the best we can of the situation that we encounter and and try and deal with that in the right way. Your predecessor was unique in the sense that he was the only mayor in Westminster for uh for good or bad I guess there were some some disadvantages to that as well obviously you're different in that in that respect to what extent do you see yourself taking the role in a different direction to Dan Jarvis, and are your priorities going to be different, or uh, is the fact that you're you, know, you don't have that access to Westminster in quite the same way is that a help or a hindrance to you? Like, what what what, what differences do you think people will notice between you and Dan Jarvis? Um, sure. Well, look, I think Pete, just to defend Dan a little bit, not that necessarily Dan needs me to defend him, but. I think people sometimes forget that when Dan took the job on, he took it on at a time when the actual deal hadn't been delivered. So the kind of leaders of the councils in South Yorkshire had agreed that we wanted the devolution deal that had been put on the table by, at the time, George Osborne and and that government. And it had never actually been sort of ratified, essentially. And, And Dan, when he took on the job, had to get that deal over the line before there was even, for instance, 
um, a salary for the mayor or an office for the mayor or, you know, anything to kind of actually um, any levers to pull on uh, to be able to make a difference in the region. So Dan took that on, took on that challenge and essentially created the platform that I now get to stand on because, you know, he got the deal over the line. So I think, you know, South Yorkshire does owe him a debt of gratitude for that. I certainly do. Um, and and that wasn't easy. And, and he took a risk in doing that. And I think he did a good job. And then once he got that job done, has gone back to Westminster. So, you know, all credit to him for that. Of course, though, like I, I of course want to do this differently and not just in the sense that I'm not an MP at the same time, but of course I have different priorities, different ideas, a different way of doing things and a different way of working. I mean, I've, I've said from the off, and I said this throughout the campaign, I, I want to be the most transparent, the most accountable mayor in the country. I want to open up the combined authority that I lead and the way in which I work and try and restore some of that trust that I think people have lost or are losing in politics and politicians and by being more accessible, more open, being out and about, being as transparent as I can, being as visible as I can um, and acting wherever I can as a champion for South Yorkshire, be it on a local stage, a regional stage, nationally or you know globally. So I definitely want to take that on in a different way. I don't have that um, platform in Westminster. That's absolutely true. But what I do have is a platform here in South Yorkshire and the ability to be, I guess, much more connected to my community in the sense that I'm here every single day. Uh, this is my home. I'm part of this community and I'm going to do the right thing for this community, uh, I hope, you know, every single day. So, you know, I'll work as hard as I can to make sure we get the best possible deal that we're driving our economy forward. We're giving people opportunities. We're helping people when it comes to public transport or jobs or skills or housing or whatever it might be. And doing that based on my knowledge and understanding and connection to this region. You mentioned buses earlier, and I suspect that's an issue that's been dominating your uh, dominating your thoughts this week. Obviously, uh, it's become apparent that we're going to see pretty significant cuts in just uh, the next few weeks. And once we get to October, it could potentially lose a third of the services in South Yorkshire when the government's subsidy subsidising of, uh, of bus services that was linked to the pandemic uh, when, when it ends. And obviously, this is an issue that your counterparts in uh, you know, Liverpool City Region and West Yorkshire and North of Tyne are wrestling with at the same time. But of course, we've been here before, haven't we? Like a few times, there's been a few times where it looks like the government's subsidy of bus services related to the pandemic is going to run out. And then they do eventually renew it. And I guess the hope is that bus services will become, passenger levels will rise to the extent that bus services will become commercially viable again, and the government doesn't need to carry on subsidising them. But how, how do we get to how do we get to that point? Because obviously, we're not there at the moment, are, are we? And it seems like a bit of a, a vicious circle, that the passengers aren't coming back to the buses. And so they're being cut. And that makes it less likely that passengers go on the buses. What, what What's the solution to that, that that problem? I mean, you're exactly right. We are at this moment in time in a cycle of decline, a death spiral, actually, um, if we're not careful when it comes to buses in South Yorkshire, because like you say, the the more that public, the, the private sector bus companies who run the buses, Stagecoach first in, in West Yorkshire, Arriva, people like that, the more that they um, pull out services, the more they disinvest in those services, the fewer people then want to get on the bus and make decisions that allow them to use the bus more frequently. So when people are, for instance, choosing whether or not to buy a car, 
when you're making that choice, I want people to be able to look at the services we have here in South Yorkshire and say, actually, I'm going to make a different choice because I know I can rely on my local bus service to get me to work, to get me to the hospital, to get me to see friends and family or college or whatever it might be. If you don't have that reliability, you make the choice to get the car. And once you've got a car, once you've got a car sitting on your driveway and you're pay- paying for the insurance, you're paying for the road tax, you're paying for the car payment, you're going to use that car. So people need to make different choices, but we need to give them the incentive to make better choices by making the bus services work for people. And the more that bus companies pull out services, obviously the harder that gets. And the problem is at the moment, I've got I've got essentially sort of four jobs really when it comes to public transport and particularly at the moment. The first of those I think is like explaining to people just how that system works. Because I think, you know, when I talk to my friends about some of this and you know when I got the job and they say oh so you're in charge of transport are you going to run the buses and I go I wish that were true you know I wish that were true actually as mayor I have very limited ability to be able to make buses for instance run on certain routes or run at certain times or charge certain fares so the private bus companies decide largely where to run buses so they can essentially say we want to run buses from Rotherham to Sheffield or Doncaster to Barnsley we want to run them this frequently and we want to charge this much and they'll run those buses most often on the most profitable routes. So, you know, that's the that's the thing they are looking to do. Not unreasonably, they're private companies. Of course, they're trying to make money. If we want the bus company to run a route, for instance, somewhere in, you know, a rural part of Doncaster, and Doncaster is the biggest uh, metropolitan borough uh, by geography, we have to actually pay a bus company to do that. So we have to go out and say to them, look, we'll pay you how much do you need. We, we can find some money from taxpayers to give you some cash to run this service. Even though it's not profitable, please run that service for us. And that's really the only only flexibility we have in the system. So when bus companies say, oh, you know, now based on the numbers of passengers after, the, after COVID and the fact that government are no longer subsidising some of this centrally, we're going to pull out of routes. And that's what they're saying they're going to do in October on about a third of routes. We have very limited ability other than to find as much money as we can to offset some of those cuts. And that's all we can do. And I'm not sure most people understand that quite rightly. I don't think it's unreasonable. Most people aren't spending their time, you know, browsing the, uh, the legislation around buses. But that's actually how it works. So I've got to kind of try and help people kind of understand that what's going on here. And that's my you know first job at this moment in time. I've got to hold the government to account. And that's some of what I've been trying to do this week is get the government to understand the challenge we face here in the region and the problems that we're facing and the systemic nature of some of those problems. I've got to then figure out how to find as much money as we can to offset as much of the cuts as possible and to a certain extent how to entice the bus companies to do more, to get more people on the buses and put some more investment here in the region and have that conversation with bus companies, which you know isn't always easy, it's got to be said. And then I've got to try and work out in the short to medium term and longer term how to do what they're doing over in Manchester or in Leeds or in Liverpool, which is go through what's called a franchising assessment process, which is basically sort of jargon for saying we've got to understand whether or not we can have, we can bring buses back in-house. We can start taking back more control over our bus network, like I think probably most of our community wants us to, so that rather than the bus company saying, look, we're just going to run the profitable routes, keep the profits, and you can pay us to run the unprofitable ones, we can have a bus network in which we say there are some profitable routes, we'll run those and we'll take the profits from those routes and we'll put them into the less profitable routes as a subsidy. So we'll be able to take the profits and use it to pay for some of the less profitable routes, cross subsidization as it's called. And that's where we essentially kind of get to if we're doing what Manchester do. Now we've got to go through the process of assessment and see if that's possible here in South Yorkshire. 
but that's the kind of medium to long term goal and we've got to do some of that in the short term to, to figure out if that's possible. That's interesting because, yeah, like you say, the Greater Manchester, Liverpool City region and also West Yorkshire are looking at franchising. I mean, it, given that they're going ahead with it, I mean, what, what is stopping you just saying we, we can see it's working or it's going to work in Greater Manchester? We're just going to go down this route ourselves. If, if, if franchising is, is, in fact, the answer, don't you need to get to that point sort of quicker than you than you seem to be getting to it at the moment or, or, or that these you know, assessments and reviews and stuff is that a necessary part of the process to get where you need to be so what's what's stopping me is the law the law as set by this government so since privatization in the 1980s 1985 um transport act and then the 2017 bus services act we're not actually allowed to do any of that without going through that quite lengthy process so we can't under any circumstances really short of you know some maybe legal loopholes buy a bus company so i couldn't even sort of say look there's a bus company, you know, that aren't running services on these routes. We want those routes to run. No bus company now, actually. What we're finding now is even when we go out to the market and say we want services to run on certain routes, bus companies won't even bid for that work. They won't even say, look, we'll do it for X amount of money. And where they are saying they'll do it for a certain amount of money, what we found this week was that for the first time in the memory of the officers that have been doing this for quite some time who work in this building, the prices that we're being quoted are about a thousand, and this isn't hyperbole, it's literally a thousand percent higher than the prices we were paying before. Now, I can't even go out and say, right, well, in which case, you know, let us take it, we'll buy a bus company and we'll run bus services ourselves. We're not allowed to do that legally, so I can't even do that. Why, why are they charging so much, so much more? What's their explanation for it being so much more expensive than it was? Before? I mean, you'd have to ask them. I, I, I have a bit of a, I mean, I think. They know the situation, the market is broken, the model's broken. To a certain extent, they know we need to run something. So some of this is like school services, for instance, right? In rural communities where kids are going to struggle to get to school if these services aren't running or evening services. So the cuts that are coming down the line at the moment, the, the cuts that those companies are making, if they go through in the way they're currently planned, Barnsley won't have a bus after seven o'clock. And I mean, like literally anywhere in Barnsley, there won't be a bus after seven o'clock in the evening. And uh, across the whole of South Yorkshire, after 10 p.m., there will be four bus routes in the whole region, a region of 1.4 million people, four, you know, decently sized, if not big, metropolitan areas, Sheffield, you know, the fourth biggest city in the country, and we'll have four bus routes. And, and that's because the bus companies are pulling out. So when they, when they come back to us and they say, this is how much we'll charge you, to a certain extent, I think they know they've got us over a barrel so they can sort of essentially tell us what they're going to charge and we can't do anything to affect the market. We, there's just, we don't have any levers to pull on in order to be able to change the system in which we operate. That's, that's a tough situation, isn't it? And, and I know you've tweeted that you, you, know, you want more control over how the buses run. I mean, can, can, is there anything differently the government could be doing to change the legislation that would make it easier, easier for you? Or is the situation, it just is what it is at the moment? So, so the reason why we go through a, a quite lengthy and frankly expensive um, process. It'll probably take 18 months, maybe at the outside two years to go through that assessment process. The reason why we have to go through that is because we have to work out whether it's, it's viable. Um, but we have to do that in such a way as to be very confident that that's the case. Now, to a certain extent, look, I think that's right. We want to be confident about how things are working. But at the same time, it would be nice to have a bit more flexibility in the system. Now, if you look at what's happening in Scotland or in Labour-led Wales, they are moving to a place where councils have much more control to own buses, to run bus services, 
And if the government were to tomorrow here in England give us that power directly, yes, of course, we would want to make some quite sensible decisions and have to investigate whether or not that were the right approach. But we could get there more quickly because of the legislation as it is right now. We can't do that. So I'd love to be able to kind of be a bit more flexible, a bit more um, a bit more uh, impactful in some ways about some of that and act in a more urgent way, because it's frankly is urgent for my community. We need those buses back on the road. But I simply don't have those powers under the laws as they're laid down by this government. So the only people who can fix that are Grant Shapps, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, the people in Rishi Sunak to a certain extent who can make that work for us in a place like South Yorkshire. They've said it's a priority for them. This is not my, you know, this is not just me saying buses are important. In their 12 levelling up missions, they said, we want everywhere outside of London to have a transport system more like the one that is in London. That's what they said. And they said they want that by 2030, which is what, 390 odd weeks away, not long at all. And yet, despite all their rhetoric, actually what we're seeing is when we say, well, we're about to lose a third of our bus network, they say, well, nothing we can do about that. Sorry to hear that. That's tough for you guys up there, but you know, nothing we can do about it. They're the government. They can step in, they can do much more, but they're choosing not to act. And that's obviously a huge frustration for me. Sticking with the subject of uh buses which i could talk about uh, all, all, all day all day long um your dan jarvis put in a 400 million pound bid for bus service improvement money obviously the bus local leaders around the country were invited to bid for cash to improve their bus services greater manchester got several mil- several hundred million i think west yorkshire got a big chunk of money south yorkshire didn't get anything and i think dan jarvis said that south yorkshire had been uh, shafted, but I've seen conservatives in South Yorkshire say that actually South Yorkshire's bid wasn't ambitious enough. I mean, have you had any feedback from the government about precisely why you didn't get any money in that in that instance? No. If if Tory P- MPs in our region um, know that our our bid was not ambitious enough, I'd really appreciate them sharing with me the feedback that they seem to have that I don't, because quite honestly, other than maybe a couple of short emails, we've received no significant or substantive formal feedback from the government about um, how our bid was assessed, why in their view we weren't worthy of any of the money that they said was going to the places that needed it most and that needed to so-called level up. So if those Tory MPs know that, I'd really appreciate them getting in touch and and letting me know. Um, Look, that bid, some facts about that bid, frankly, it took about, I think it was 18 months, maybe two years before my time, but you know, it took a significant amount of work from very experienced officers here in this building to develop that bid. So it was absolutely a detailed, robust and ambitious bid that we put in. What's interesting is when people say it wasn't ambitious enough, the Tory MPs that I've heard talk about this then follow up and say, and of course, South Yorkshire was asking for £474 million, which they say was, um, I think I've heard Tory MPs say that was half of the money available. Well, I don't know, quite frankly, how it can be not ambitious enough, but also asking for too much money. The fact is that we asked for £474 million from what was supposed to be a pot of £3 billion. So when Boris announced that, Boris Johnson announced that money, he said that there was £3 billion on offer for what he called a, a bus back better strategy. In the event, there was only £1.2 million, pound, sorry, billion pounds with a B, billion pounds that was, that was doled out. And it was oversubscribed in terms of the amount of money that was asked for by people like me and other parts of the country as well, um, by the tune of about 
um, eight to nine times. So in the event, about nine billion pounds was asked for by other mayors and regions in the country. So quite frankly, there was a huge need, a huge demand. It was oversold by government. They underdelivered, and then the bid that we put in, which was ambitious, it included things like, for instance, free travel for under 18s. It included um, us paying operators to do some quite clever things on ticketing to make ticketing easier and cheaper, capping fares. It included um, fixing our um, infrastructure, things like the bus stops, which aren't frankly up to standard right now. It included a load of things that, that the government said they want from us and want us to see us do. But they chose not to give us a single penny of that money whilst giving places like Somerset £115 million. If the government say they want to level up the country, then they need to give the places that need that funding the most a requisite amount of money. So you can't just say, look, on a wing and a prayer, we want you to level up. Levelling up costs money. And what it surprises me in all of this is you wouldn't say to people, well, look, um, we're not going to give you any primary schools can you please put in a bid and tell us why you deserve primary schools up there in south yorkshire or could you please put in a bid and tell us why you deserve diabetic services or 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 anything else when it comes to public services the money should follow the need and yet when it comes to public transport which frankly is a public service the clue is in the title the government choose not to give us any money at all so of the 474 million pounds we didn't get a single penny and yet clearly we have a significant need here in South Yorkshire in order to keep buses on the road to keep communities connected to get people from hospital get people to work get people to see friends and family and it just isn't a system that works because they're making it this competitive process for bidding they're not giving any feedback and then they're telling us that somehow our bid wasn't good enough well it just doesn't work and the government needs to take a better approach, a different approach and actually respond to the need we have in our community, not some sort of Hunger Games style competition. Yeah, I think whenever I speak to local leaders of different types around the country and around the north, they bemoan the beauty pageant culture that that exists for having to bid to government go cap in hand for funds when they would just like to have control over that money themselves. Um, just as a final a final thought, Oliver, I mean, obviously you, you're a few weeks into the job now. I guess you've got a sense of the, the things that you can do, the things that you can't do. I mean, are there things that levers that you would like to be able to pull, powers that you wish that you wish that you had that maybe if you were, you know, if if you had the chance to talk to Michael Gove and say this is what I would like to have in South Yorkshire, you would be you would be lobbying for? I mean, look, just very simply on on the buses, as I've just said, like, for instance, I would like more power to be able to take an alternative approach to how we run our public transport system to at least explore and understand if, for argument's sake, owning buses in South Yorkshire was a viable way of us delivering better bus services in the region. Now, the evidence from other parts of the country seems to show that it might be. And in South Yorkshire, we used to have a bus network that was the envy of the country. It was a world-class service. Um, and then privatisation happened and we got to the point now where we're seeing a third of our bus network cut and there's nothing we can do about it. I'd love the ability to at least explore that approach. I'm not being ideological about this. It's a very practical question. Can we do better if we do this in a different way? And I'd love the opportunity to be able to explore that and then act based on the evidence rather than an ideology which says private companies should run everything. I just don't think that works. Failing that, the ability for me, for instance, to be able to say to the bus companies, right, well, if you want to run those profitable routes, then I am mandating that you also have to run some of these other routes as well. 
you know, that would help me to be able to at least put some pressure on those bus companies to act in a slightly different way and change that calculation that they're currently making, which says we can simply pull out of the unprofitable routes. And if we do that, then frankly, the mayor's probably going to pay us anyway to deliver them. So we might as well. And we can just keep hold of our most profitable routes and put all our resources into those. So in that area, I think that's an obvious way where, you know, we could see some quite quick changes that would improve the experience of passengers and people who aren't passengers yet, but we would like to get back on the bus. So those are some of the things. I think longer term, you know, there is a conversation in South Yorkshire and it's at very early stages about things like, for instance, do we have a conversation about bringing the the role of the police and crime commissioner into the mayor's office? That's what happens in Manchester. It's what happens in West Yorkshire. It's what happens in London. Do we want that to happen here? And then some other areas where, for instance, you know, on things like um, I've said, I want healthy life expectancy, health inequalities to be a major part of what I try and focus in on as mayor. You know, could we do more, for instance, on things like health, certainly in places like Manchester, Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham has more ability to be able to shape the health agenda. And I think that gives you more opportunities to um, to support communities and work with communities and join things up. And maybe I'd quite like to be able to kind of um, do more of that work here in here in the region. So they're the areas that I'd be most interested in, I think, right now. That's really interesting. Uh, one to keep an eye on, definitely. Um, well, Oliver Coppard, thank you very much and good luck with uh, your talks with the bus companies. Fab. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Now, when we talk about political ideas which might impact on our lives in the North, generally the conversation turns to big projects or concepts like HS2, levelling up. But could it be that smaller ideas, if they're good enough and can be replicated across our region, could help change a local community or even be felt further afield? That's the thinking behind a new project called 100 Ideas for the North, which is ongoing throughout 2022 and is led by passionate Northerners Tris Brown and Patrick Hurley. Their plan is to turn the submissions into a book, creating a manifesto for how the North could flourish after decades of Westminster indifference. And Tris Brown is joining us today to talk about the project. Welcome, Tris. Hi. Hello, nice to have you on. Can you just explain the thinking behind the idea? Yeah, sure. So the idea was kind of inspired by a book that Marco Rubio wrote called 100, I think called 100 Progressive Ideas for Florida or something along those lines. But he basically wrote a book and he put together 100 ideas and he wrote it after conversations with many people. When you've got 100 ideas, you can cover lots of different themes, right? So it covers lots of areas. Now, this was, uh, I think, about 15 years ago or so now. But the idea stuck with Patrick and I and we talked about, well, actually, what would that look like? if we did something similar for the North. Both of us are very passionate about the North. We're very active uh, and have been very active kind of politically across the North. And we have a real passion for advancing and developing and promoting the North. So we thought, what would this actually look like? So out of that, this idea came in that we would attempt to write, co-write, co-create a book, of, uh, or at least the ideas, but with communities of the North. And there's some of it, you know, on one level, some of it is really kind of just a small, it's you know, two guys who are passionate about talking to people in the North about what makes communities passionate about the ideas that they can have. How do we can put that together? So we started going out, we started talking to people. It's very, um, it's very authentic. It's very kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're building this from, from scratch. You know, it's just two passionate guys trying to make this work. But the core of the idea is if 
if we talk to communities across the north about those small ideas that they feel passionate about that could transform or change their area, can we pull all those ideas together and then challenge other communities to adopt those ideas or at least let them see what each other is thinking and then adopt them, uh, take them for their own uses, change them for their own uses. But essentially, uh, and that's where we come up with this this script that the ideas we're looking for are small enough that they can be implemented in your community, but big enough that they can be copied or replicated or scaled to cover everyone. And through that, we hope to really see change in communities because they're, they are advocating for their own ideas. And that's the really crucial bit here. We're attempting to co-create this with communities. That's really interesting. So presumably the the thinking behind it is that there's all these good ideas lurking in communities around the north, but other parts of the north don't necessarily know about them because there might be something might be happening in in Blackburn, but in in Barnsley or Bradford they they don't know about it. So it's trying to replicate it across that wider region. It's replication. It's about discovering each other's ideas, but it's also about giving a voice to the communities of the North, to the people who ultimately make the decisions or make the funding decisions to implement them. I've got a background in local government. I'd say local government tends to know its own communities. It tends to know what it needs locally. But what we have been, what has been clearly coming through in the conversations with people is this sense of lack of control over their own destiny and their own communities because the the political direction of, of, of discussion, of debate, doesn't really listen to communities on the ground in the north. And I'm, I'm talking particularly from Whitehall and Westminster here. So there is this sense of the national decision making about how we invest, what policies we create, what kinds of projects we're going to favour. As you mentioned in your intro, it's all about the big projects. It's kind of we'll, we'll throw a billion pound project in at the wall and hope that something will stick. Whereas in truth, when you actually listen to people on the ground, they've got much smaller ideas that they think could make a real transformational difference to them with very little uh, additional investment. So we want to capture that, share it, and then hopefully give a a voice to those communities uh, for the resources they're calling for. So can you give us an idea of the kind of things that you might have been hearing so far? Because I know you've been, yourself and Patrick have been out and about, haven't you, around the north sort of doing workshops and things like that i mean what what kind of what kind of ideas just to give listeners an idea like what kind of things are are they are people saying have you heard so far sure so in a sense there are no rules we're open to anything and everything that people will say but what has come through has really covered a very wide range at our very first session which was in huddersfield we were talking to about 30 people at the not westminster conference that was held. And the room really listened to the young people in the room who were very passionately advocated for better citizenship education to help them understand how they change and have a voice in the political decisions that are being made around them. So the very, very first idea that we collected for the 100 Ideas for the North, it was this idea of having professional citizenship education in schools provided to schools. So that's And I don't think I would never have predicted that idea coming into it, you know, at the very beginning, just wouldn't have ever done that. But that's an example of one idea. On the other end of the spectrum, there's a very clear theme coming through of people feeling that they don't have control over their, their high streets and their towns and their communities, or even that the winds of economic change, if you will, are having a real impact on how people feel in terms of pride and their sense of place on where they live. Retail is changing fundamentally. 
shops are closing, high streets have empty slots in them, and it, it is severely impacting on people's pride about their local community. So they want more control over that. So things like local markets for startups, helping people uh, create new shops or making communities so that they can sell things, that's a really strong theme that comes through. The final one I'd want to mention is interesting because people have come at it from very different directions, but the common idea in the center is, is a, an idea around community kitchens. And one group on the Wirral came at this from the sense of an after school club, this idea, you know, let's give uh, kids something to do after school that will be fun, but educational, give them really strong life skills. But then another group in Yorkshire came at exactly the same idea, but it was much more from a tackling poverty route, helping people under, you know, learn how to cook more cheaply for themselves. And that notion of the skills around cooking and how do you teach people to learn to cook, but from a community perspective, uh, I, I think is really interesting because two very different directions, but the, the idea they came up with in the middle is the same, which is community kitchens. And community kitchens is a lovely idea. We could open a, ki- a community kitchen in every town across the north. It's not overly expensive. I'm not saying it's cheap, but it's not it's not ludicrously expensive. But that is a perfect idea of something you could replicate everywhere, and each community will put their own solutions around that asset if you could create it. Absolutely. Well, yeah, community kitchens might not be cheap, but it's probably cheaper than uh, HS2. So yeah. uh, from that point of view, uh, it's a, a bargain. Well, that is very interesting. And I, I will await eagerly the, the book when it comes out and see what ideas people have come up with. Um, can you just remind listeners, how do they put ideas forward? Sure. So we're open to all ideas. I know I've talked about some in- individual ideas, but we are open to everyone putting their idea forward and you can do that through the website at 100ideasnorth.org 100ideasnorth.org Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.